On 1st of April 2022, Malaysia had entered into the transitional endemic stage with the loosening of many restrictions including all forms of domestic travel, regardless of vaccination status. One month later, 1st of May 2022, we stepped into another milestone with the requirement of my Sejatra QR scanning removed. On 15th of May 2022, there shall be a complete lifting of all economic restrictions which have been imposed since the beginning of the pandemic. As we stagger into our promised land, one thing remains looming in the background. Long COVID. What is long COVID and do people even care anymore? My guests and myself are going to explore this today. So very good day and welcome to all of you listeners to our show once again. Today we have our guest, Dr. Lan Shi, who happened to be my wife. So welcome to the show. Hi. Yes, it's a privilege to be on this platform. Really looking forward to this time. And, and you know, Lanshi, we have been talking about COVID like all the time. And I was just yeah. counting since March 2020, almost 800 days already. And all of a sudden we are here, 1st of May, the deadline. And remember, we, we just seen the last few days, right? So many people outside on the street and we were at Zemenye and the food ran out. So it seems like people are coming out, but at the same time, you know, we want to talk about long COVID. Before that, let's just talk a little bit about your background because you are in private practice. That's right. So I'm an anesthetist and I'm in a private practice. So throughout the COVID period, of course, you know, that we have to deal with policy that is related to COVID intermittently in the workplace. Yeah, so is it fair to say that, you know, you, you are involved you are still involved in terms of pandemic-related policies because you are seeing so many patients, pre-op patients. That's right. And you have to make decisions, you know, can the surgery go ahead, things like that. So, so you are in the front line in terms of dealing with COVID. But I think it's fair to say that you also have a personal interest, you know, in terms of what's happening out there with the body of authority and you are going into research and just dealing with the level of misinformation. I mean, that's the term that has been throwing around. And we have been finding that it is very ironic. Those who accuse others of misinformation, they are usually the one that is kind of propagating the major misinformation. And I'm talking about the scientific, the medical authority, but we'll go into that a bit later, okay? Now, before we go into long COVID, I think we need to just go back to one of the main issues that have been plaguing the pandemic. And I want to go back to the episode with Dr. Roland and we talk about the constant shifting of goalposts, you know, the football right, goalposts. Right. Yep. And unfortunately, it's done by government, it's done by health authority. So just one example, vaccine, right? What is vaccine? You know, in the beginning, they say it can cause prevention or infections. And then you say, oh, it actually can't stop that, but it will stop transmissions. And all of a sudden, they realize it's not happening and they say, oh, it's going to help you not to get very severe symptoms, etc., etc. So that's the kind of shifting that I'm talking about. And I think recently you found out about the change of definitions for vaccine itself. Maybe you can just walk us through that. That's right. I mean, CDC just changed the definition of vaccine last year. And even before that, prior to covid the definition of vaccine was changed by CDC, if I'm not mistaken, in 2015. Eventually, last year, they took out the word immunity and mm -hmm. they, they, they inserted a word of protection. You know, 
and I think even t- as much as what was publicly acknowledged by NIH and CDC was that you get a jab, you get a vaccine, you basically can get COVID. And I would say as much as a non-vaccinated person. So that initial data of vaccine in helping to prevent someone to, to get COVID, that type of initial data of 90 plus percentage is really, that was just not true. And that is the whole thing about this vaccine and COVID, that even right now, we are still seeing data that's coming out. Data on the efficacy, data on the safety aspect of the vaccine. And it's just not long ago where mm-hmm. the CDC and NIH came out and say that maybe we have to prolong the duration of the first jab and the second jab. Yep, yep. And that was like almost, you know, those who have received the vaccine in Malaysia and globally has got it. They has got their first jab and second jab because the risk of myocarditis. Mm-hmm. So this is what we are talking about when the data is still evolving and yet there is that mandate that ties along with the vaccine that if you don't get the jab, you're going to lose the job. If you don't get a jab, you can't go to school. You know, this itself, I think when given time, the history will look back at this and say, what went wrong with the scientific community? And we talk about history, right? Never before have we defined vaccines in terms of removing the concept of immunity because That's right. every time you have vaccines, I mean, the general knowledge, the, the layman's knowledge will be, I, I shouldn't be getting the disease. I mean, if I get a hepatitis B vaccine, I shouldn't be getting hepatitis B. A polio vaccine, I shouldn't be getting that. I mean, that's the layman's definitions. And do you think that changing now, you, you go through, you, you have talked about how the authority was just so quick to jump on the bandwagons of vaccine. We talk about that so often, how they presented the vaccine as the B-O-N-O kind of elixir. So after a while, it doesn't work. And so many people, I mean, including yourself, you have vaccines and you get COVID. That's right. <laughs> and and so, so it's like because of this, I think people started to feel a bit disappointed. People started to feel a bit suspicious. And I think some people began to woke up and they are like, what is the real agenda behind it? So I think in Malaysia, we began to see some sort of pushback, especially at the beginning against lockdown. Now, of course, lockdown, I think, is a bread and butter issue. People just need the money. People just need the work. And, and so after a while, there was just a lot of pushback. But in terms of vaccine, there, there was initially, I would say even right now, there, there was a lot of goodwill. There was a lot of trust in the system. But then when everyone started to get, especially with Omicron, that's right. I will speak for myself that mm-hmm. initially when the vaccine started to roll out, I was looking forward to it. Yep. And then, you know, I got vaccinated. Yep. But eventually that you see with the past Delta wave, with Omicron, that people who are fully vaccinated and they get COVID and some of them died. Mm-hmm. Not some, many. And I will say that, you know, with Omicron in the recent month, if you look at the intensive care, I would say majority are vaccinated. Some even get booster and they still get severe disease and die, you know. So the tricky part is this, when you start to question the vaccine efficacy within the medical community, you are... So uh, the pushback came. That's right. So you're seen as like, (laughs) why why are you not aligned with us Mm. in your view, in your presentation? But 
you know, to not to question science is unscientific. To say that trust the science is unscientific yep. because we have been trained to critically appraise the data. Mm-hmm. We have been trained in medical school to look at data and say that, you know, is there something that went wrong in this research? But in COVID, you are supposed to go along with the narrative. You are supposed to go along to say that the vaccine works, yep, yep. you know, but when it's not, you are not allowed to say it. And not just that, you are intimidated and you are labelled as you know, there's a labeling that came upon you and say that you are against the medical community, mm-hmm. that you are not for medical community unity. So this type of labeling is quite intimidating, mm. I would have to say. And I will come back to the whole medical fraternity and how it just seems like there was a huge implosion. But we'll come back to that. But coming back to vaccine itself, I, I think the pushback gained more momentum, at least in Malaysia, after the booster, after the mix and match and just people are looking at the whole scenario and, and it's like, you guys have no idea what you're doing. You are just kind of, you know, making decisions on the fly. And then I think when children vaccination came, another wave of skeptics came. That's right. And even Kerry himself considered, you know, not long ago, he said that it looks like a large percentage of Malaysian parents have rejected children vaccination. He said that himself just yep. before 1st of May deadline. And basically, he gave all the lame excuses. Oh, now we have to shift our resources to treatment, etc., etc. Now, what's your take on this? Is it because there is a greater awareness of what's happening? You know, all the conspiracy, all the lack of transparency, or is it simply the fact that people feel perhaps the pandemic is over? I would say it's a combination of few mm-hmm. factors. As the vaccination for children is rolling out, what we are seeing is also many children are getting COVID and most of them recover uneventfully mm-hmm. without requiring any treatment. You know, I mean, they, they get fever, they need the regular Panadol and hydration, you know, and tablet sponging, just like any other viral illness. And then I would say for a lot of the children that is around us that we are seeing, as a matter of fact, the severity of illness is less than, let's say, influenza. Yep, um, yep. And, and parents are questioning. It's like, you know, my children, they have got COVID and they recover uneventfully. Why should they get the vaccine? Now, now let's talk about the comparison with influenza because from the very, very beginning, we're talking about 2020, and even that year, CDC own data, you know, show the children infections. And in terms of severity with influenza, it's much lower than that. That's right. And, and then all of a sudden, the severity in children, the issue only came out when the vaccine for children are being rolled out. In fact, if we remember correctly, when the vaccine access is scarce yep. and it's limited, mm-hmm. the narrative that was given, well, the presentation that was given by CDC is always that children are least affected yep, yep. and they have mild illness. And the priority should be the adult, especially those who are with risk factors. They are old, they have comorbids like diabetes mm-hmm. and obesity. Those are the ones who should get the, the jab. Yep. You know, the children, you know, they recover. They have mild illness and they are not the priority. Mm. Then eventually, in recent months, when the vaccination focus shifted to the pediatric group, yep. even with that, the majority of the pediatric group and organization globally did acknowledge that 
the illness is still mild, but the justification is long COVID. The justification is the multi-inflammatory system complex syndrome that is uncommon, but still you should get a jab. Yeah, so, so, so that's what we want to talk about, long COVID. And in fact, this is a concept used by many doctors in Malaysia, you know, it's one of the primary justification for child vaccination. I think uh, one of the pediatricians, Ama Singh, who wrote many articles, did many webinars, was one of the strong proponents to the whole long COVID. But what is long COVID? And now before we get into this, because I know you have done some research, you have done some reading and just uncover some really, really disturbing origin for this long COVID concept. But let me just highlight one point before you get into your, your discourse is just prior to 1st of May, you know, just a, one or two weeks ago and before the openings, the new phase of openings, I think KJ and even our DG was saying that, okay, we are loosening the restrictions, but be very careful of long COVID and whatever that means. There seems to be a lack of definition, even basic understanding of long COVID. So, can you break it down for us in simple terms, you know? You know, what is long COVID or at least how the medical authority have sought to present it? So I have done some research because mm -hmm. mainly also a lot us, our family and our friends have got COVID. And I'm like, you know, you have not heard about, for example, long leptospirosis, <laughs> long meliodosis, you know, that, that type of syndrome in the past. And what exactly is long COVID? And in my mind, I was like thinking, hey, how did they even discover there is such thing as long COVID? Yep. I'll quote a paper that is published in eClinical Medicine. I mean, you guys can go and look it up. It's also a platform owned by Lancet. And they documented around 200 symptoms, 200 symptoms of long COVID. So it can be as simple as something that is like a fatigue, a cough, a breathlessness that persists beyond the acute illness. So it can last for weeks, even months, so they claim. And the less common symptoms can be like joint pain, headache, rhinitis, poor appetite, dizziness. And it can include psychological or cognitive complaint like brain fog, fearfulness, insomnia, mood, anxiety. So really, 200 symptoms, literally, I mean, it can be anything and everything under the sun. As with any respiratory illness, or any severe illness, COVID-19 does appear to have some long-term sufferers, you know, especially in the elderly and if they have comorbid, and more so if they spend a period of time in intensive care. Mm -hmm. So just like any other illness, if they have gone through that type of critical care period, the recovery is going to be, it's going to take some time. Yep. And they, they might have some long-standing symptom. And that is even before COVID, you know. Mm -hmm. But, in terms of defining COVID, interestingly, recently I, I, I was just listening to a New England Journal of Medicine audio interview mm -hmm. and they were talking to a principal investigator that is working with NIH, all right, Dr. Cliff Rosen. And they acknowledge that that is a challenge in case definition for long COVID. And they tried to come up with definition, but at the end, rather than that's their own word, starting with a predefined definition and they were trying to avoid quote-unquote bias and they just let the patient tell them what they are experiencing. They let the patient tell them what their symptoms are and they will say, 
okay, you might have full-on COVID based on your brain fog or your tiredness, you know, lack of performance in work, and then go from there. So this know? is the NIH study. They are doing this recover initiative, try to just study long COVID. So it's different from the e-clinical study. Different. Yeah, but they, they seem to have a similarity in terms of we are going to let people tell us what long COVID is all about. That's right. And can you maybe walk through us because, you know, we're just having a discussion before the recording about the e-clinical and maybe, you know, just highlight to us how they even conduct the study, especially the exclusion criteria, which to me That's is just right. astounding. That's right. Now, this study that is published on e-clinical medicines back in the period of last year, 2021, April, right? And the study was based on a survey conducted by a body, a group of people, and they are called the body politics. Okay. So this concept of long study really originated from an online survey produced by body politics. Let's look more closely at the survey. The survey is basically unprecedented, very unorthodox. It's patient-initiated, patient-led. And what they do is they have this information sheet that can be assessed, I think even right now from this website, you Mm -hmm. can look it up. It's called patientresearchcovid19.com slash survey. And it consists of 257 questions. And it requires an average or median time of about 69.3 minutes to complete. Mm-hmm. Yep. Long time. So the respondent, they were encouraged to take a break <laughs> while they conduct the survey. So this is taking into account that some of the COVID recoverer might have brain fog, mm-hmm. might have problem with their cognition. So they were encouraged to take some break. And the progress while you are taking that survey can save up to 30 days and allow the respondent to return to the survey a bit later. The survey is created in English and translated into eight other languages. Mm-hmm. So put it another word that you have to sit down, take about one and a half hour time of your own time to answer questions to see whether you have long COVID. I ask you that when was the last time when you visited a doctor for a surgical problem, medical <laughs> problem, whether whether con- consultants sit down and talk to you for half an hour and ask you 30 questions. You know what I'm saying? So anything and everything under the sky can be attributed to long COVID. And while you you might feel like, hey, today I have a headache and tomorrow I don't. Or today I don't have this symptom and then one week later I have this symptom and I'll go back to the survey and put a tick. And it could be still because of COVID. And you were saying that this e-clinical study it includes people with no COVID. That's right. The body politics initially, the first survey that they came out, and many of the respondents who attributed, reported their syndrome due to COVID-19, quite likely never had the virus in the first place. And in the survey, they themselves claimed that not even quarter of this respondent tested positive for the virus. 27.5% tested negative for COVID-19, 47.8% never had any testing. And you would think the study design would improve. They never. So, so body politics, eventually they publicized the, the result of a larger a second survey. And this includes 3,762 respondents. A mere 600% or 15.9% had tested positive for the virus at any time. And this is the one that we talk about in e-clinical medicine mm-hmm. that is owned by Lancet. 
So only a mere 15.9 has tested positive. And I would say that if you want to conduct study to look at, let's say, a long TB syndrome, for example, mm -hmm. what is the quality of your study when only 15 or even 20% of your study subjects has tested positive for pulmonary TB? Yeah, I mean, it seems crazy to me because from the layman point of view, I mean, when you do experiment, yes, you have the control sample, but we are not talking even about control sample. We're talking about the, the main body of research and it seems like a large majority never had COVID. They were never scientifically assessed to have COVID. No RTK, no PCR testing done. So now, before we, we go back further into the study, this e-clinical study, is this the main literature that is being referenced in terms of pushing the idea of long COVID? That's right. So eventually, British Medical Journal, mm -hmm. they come up with uh, another study. Yep. And they come up with this statistic that 10% of those who had COVID before would develop long COVID. From that article, that 10% also derived from the survey the that is conducted say. by body politics. Okay, That's okay. Right. Now, now I think it's important we explain this because why we are going in length in terms of breaking down this e-clinical study is that that is the basis, that is the origin of the concept of long COVID. And, and we have already seen so far that the foundation of this study is just so problematic. It's not scientific. And, you, you know, just listening to, to what you were sharing, of course, early on we had some discussion this seems to me like those kind of social, racial justice kind of research, you know, a, a bit like the, the gender fluid movement, you know. Today, if I feel like I'm male, you know, if I'm a female, I feel like I'm a male, I can go to the male locker room, I can, you know, have hormone treatment. I, I mean, that's what's happening right, right now. And that's pseudoscience. That's something that is, I mean, it's another topic for another day, but it's highly related because pseudoscience is like if I, you know, in, in terms of this, e-clinical study if I feel like I have COVID I have COVID I have COVID who I mean, are you to question me <laughs> and, and, and if you question me and you become like you know why are you questioning you know by my facts that I told you I have COVID you so, know what I'm saying yeah. so, so it's like we, we go back to what we said earlier even about the whole vaccine kind of thing and it, it, it's almost like you know the authority whether the medical authority the political authority whatever they have a position they want to adopt and then they scramble to find the data, they scramble to find the support. And so, so we're seeing prestigious medical paper like Lancet descending into, you know, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I'm using the word pseudoscience. Uh, but what really kind of caused me to have, I mean, it's like an explosion in my brain. It's like, as lay people, as normal citizens, are we expected to now examine scientific paper? Because it's like the last two years, it seems like, I, I mean, we, we have done a few ourselves and we just find the, the whole basis and structure for comparison, just very, very poor lack of data. And, and that is one of the reasons why there's a constant shift of goalposts. All of a sudden, they get new data. It's a bit like what Joe Rogan was saying, right? You say we're talking misinformation, but this misinformation actually is the truth of tomorrow. That's right. It's the big elephant that nobody wants to talk about, especially in medical community. And this is not the first time that Lancet came up mm. with a paper like this. I mean, I would think that, you know, by 
not having a confirmatory test to say someone has a COVID-19 <laughs> would be an exclusion criteria. They shouldn't even be in the study. And you are talking about a pandemic that affects millions and billions of people on Earth. And this paper, this survey is translated into eight languages. Is it that hard to get subjects who are interested to participate in your study? Out of all this, they managed to get 3,000 people. Setting that apart, the problem with scientific paper is not something new. Mm-hmm. The data. Going back to Lancet again, I mean, the ed- editor-in-chief back in 2015, and they acknowledged that people don't trust science mm-hmm. because the way the paper is being published and conducted, yep, yep. that they, the scientific community, the medical community behind a closed-door symposium acknowledge that that is that systemic problem mm-hmm. that involves in publishing a scientific paper. They say that most of the paper that is published just not true. Yep, yep. And again, historically, <laughs> we see that even in anesthesia, you have a high-profile paper that totally revamped the practice of anesthesia practice. And eventually, that one paper is being reviewed as fraud mm-hmm. because the principal investigator synthesized, fabricated the data on table. And, and he didn't really <laughs> conduct the research, you know. Back in 2020, if we remember correctly, and if you still remember that Lancet has to retrieve one yeah. of the major papers that has got to do with hydroxychloroquine in COVID. And that has totally changed the mind of many practitioners with regards to the use of hydroxychloroquine in COVID-19. I mean, this is not something that is new. And yet you see that that lack of discernment, yep. that lack of critical appraisal is astounding, especially in COVID. We always say, if you say something that is wrong, later on you can do retraction, you can do correction, but somehow people's minds are stuck with the original right. idea. So the, the, the thing that really kind of annoys me is that nobody is being held accountable to, to all these things. Now, coming back to the e-clinical study, I mean, there has been so much emphasis on testing. You know, I, I can't believe that you can't get enough people with COVID positive. It's just, to me, it's a baloney kind of thing. It's like so many testing, so many positive cases, you, you can just throw a stone and you can get a few hundred people. That's so right. it seems to me that the foundation of the study, something is very, very problematic. And when we talk about long COVID, we don't even talk about the long COVID adversity that comes from vaccine itself. Nobody wants to talk about that because, yeah. you know, now we, we start to have certain cases with children and things like that. And every time you realize that they have to come out and say specifically, it's not related to vaccine. Yeah. This indirectly is already reflects the sentiment of the public yep. that you have to come out and address that it is not related to the vaccine. And it reflects the sentiment because there is that concern mm-hmm. that the public is thinking this could be because of the vaccine. But coming back to long COVID, that is from the COVID infection itself. You can't talk about that without talking about the long COVID yep. that people can potentially get from the jab. Yeah, and nobody wants to talk about that. I, I mean, yeah. I'm talking about the big pharma, those who are funded by it. And I, I think in the episode with Dr. Roland, we, we talk about, you know, I, I think you were alluding, you know, why the medical community, why the scientists, they are so quick to get behind. Why are they so kind of, I mean, for the lack of better word, o- obedient. And, but then now we found out that their position is highly compromised now. Dr. Roland did mention is the training 
But we talk about there is a conflict of interest also. You see so many of the hospitals, so many of the medical practices that are being funded by big pharma, you know, the cash there, the influence there, the political leverage. So do you think there is a lot of conflict of interest in, in the medical industry? Definitely. I mean, it's not something new. People talk about it all the time, even before COVID. So this is when, you know, the geopolitical type of understanding is very important. And if you look at Malaysia context. I mean, recently I just read about a newspaper article that quoted, you know, our health minister quoted a statistic about 10 to 15% of those who had gotten COVID might get long COVID. Yep. And then there is that figure about 20 to 25% of patients who is having long COVID now in Malaysia. Now, 25,000 patients is having long COVID and needed long-term follow-up. Now, it's very interesting because when you look at Malaysia community, you do not hear so much of people complaining about long COVID mm -hmm. and claim, for example, SOXO, you <laughs> know, and say that they can't work. I would believe this is a bit more rampant in, let's say, the United Kingdom let's say, in United States. And if you remember, even back in last year, that the President Joe Biden has promised about one point something billion funding for long COVID. And those people who had long COVID and they say they can't work, they might get some unemployment benefit mm -hmm. or some benefit that ties to it. And it's the same with UK, where you see huge funding that has gone into so-called the long COVID rehabilitation. Yep. And to say that a syndrome covers 200 plus symptoms, <laughs> it's, I mean, for the lack of better word, it's ridiculous. Yep. You know? And also to quote one of the interesting studies recently by the UCLA, that they attributed 30%. I mean, they, they said out of those who had COVID, 30%, up to 30%, might possibly get long COVID. But in that article, what is interesting is that those who have commercial insurance, as compared to having a Medicaid, they are at higher risk <laughs> of getting long COVID. Yeah, yeah. And that scientific paper did say that they don't know why. They don't know uh, why there is a correlation I, there. I think we can, we can explain why. I mean, we look at socialized medicines, and we, think we talk about insurance. You know, you go to hospital, if you have insurance, then all of a sudden you can do MRI, you can do whatever test you want. But if you are cash paying patient, then the doctor will be like, okay, let's do something more preliminary. Let's do something. So it's like, it's like the doctors are not doing their job when all of a sudden you have funding. And we know that the whole last two years, so much funding so much resources are being thrown into COVID. That's right. So, so even the study themselves acknowledge something is a bit fishy here, right? That's right. So if you follow the news in, in US and you know in some states there is that financial incentive mm -hmm. to diagnose a patient with COVID-19. That is that funding, extra funding that is going to come to a hospital institution yep. if they diagnose someone with COVID-19. And if a patient died of COVID-19, they are going to get extra funding. So you see that type of financial conflict of interest yep. is there. So another analogy would be, let, let's say you work in an office and they, they give you like unlimited sick leave. And today you wake up with just a slight headache. You won't hesitate to call in sick because you know you'll be covered. Whereas if you're a contractor type, you don't show up, you don't get your wages. Minor ailments or even 
you know, moderate kind of condition, you will still pick yourself up and go to work. And I think that kind of described Malaysia's uh, situation because I'm pretty sure so, so is not going to cover for long COVID. You know, it's like you can't even define what is long COVID. That's right. And people just need to get off their butt and start working. So I, I think this whole long COVID thing, I mean, to my mind, it is really the authority is trying to scare people and say, come on, this is a final round of vaccination. Come, come, come. And from what we have seen the last few days, nobody really cares, at least in Malaysia, I would say. I think the one good thing about Malaysian society is, you know, that we have shifted the gear mm-hmm. right now. You know, you look at surrounding that many people are coming out and outdoor, you know, we don't even have to wear masks yep. in, in an open air. I mean, these, these are good changes. Mm-hmm. These are the changes that is necessary basically to navigate. I mean, if you conventionally you look at any viral illness, that is that timeline where the virus is gone. Yep, yep. And it's the same with COVID, you know. It's the same with COVID. There will be that day when it's no more a threat. Yep, and yep. I think we have way past that period. That threat is dwindling with, especially in Omicron. But again, then you see that the policymaker, the government control, I mean, it's very hard for them to let go of that type of power and yep, control yep. that they had for the past two years. Yeah, but you are right, you know. Uh, you remember that we, we had a time where the close contact have to quarantine for up to 10 days. Yep, yep. And eventually you see some workers is taking advantage of that. And <laughs> in the name of close contact, they don't turn up for work yep, yep. for up to a week or 10 days. When the money hurts in a company, then the brain start to kick in. Yeah, you start to see HR managers say, okay, don't do PCR. You That's know, right. just, just when you're better... So don't, don't even do RTK for some people. I mean, I, I think for the small, medium enterprise, we really limited costing. Somehow their brains start to function Actually, very quickly. Actually, KJ, he himself came up with this. And don't do PCR. Yeah. Yes. About the limitation of PCR mm-hmm. as compared to RTK. So yeah, there you go. I always feel like our authority now, this is a fair statement to them that in terms of the mandate, you know, Malaysian government is not as crazy as a lot of the Western yeah. governments. And I, I think they're really in two minds, you know. On one hand, we need the economy to kickstart. But on the other hand, they are sort of enjoying the power of control and, and causing people. And I know, in, in a way, the pandemic has ended. But one of the conservative think tank in, in United States was just saying that we need to think in terms of the warfare ahead. Because lockdown has been used. There's no guarantee that lockdown will not be used again in future pandemic, even though it has been discredited by many, many academic paper. That, there you go. I mean, talking about lockdown, if we all remember correctly mm. that it was based on a fraud paper yep. by the Imperial College yeah, London. Yeah. They are modeling know, of millions right. of people dying. Yes. So that is another example where the science has failed and people just go along with the narrative and then they go along and say, do not question the science. So it seems like the, the strategy is if you escalate the matter like to a very severe kind of position, then you kind of force people to say, we need to act quickly. We need to decide now. Because that seems to be the whole issue with COVID-19, right? That we are using unproven data. We are acting too hastily, you know, like lockdown, like vaccine. Is it, Traditionally, vaccine takes five to 10 years to mature. And here we're releasing, you know, within one year and then we start to collect data. So, so that seems to be 
the thing that's happening and do you think the medical community actually has, have learned anything from this? I mean, from your observation? Unfortunately, I would say not for all. Mm -hmm. But uh, there are some who are awakening, that's I'm right. sure. That's right. I think, like I say, history is going to look back at this period and it's going to call it like the dark ages, <laughs> you know. But truly, I would think that we should have done a better job. Mm. And if we allow the questioning to come in by not intimidating you know, the voice that is different from what the mainstream media is yep, saying. Yep. Perhaps we will be in a better place. But I think, you know, like previous episode where we interviewed Dr. Roland, it is good and it's exciting to finally meet a doctor who are like-minded. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think out there, there are more yep, of yep. doctors who are questioning. I believe there are doctors who are asking questions. Maybe... Like many, we just chose not to, you know, we keep the opinion to ourselves. Yeah, yeah. And for some of us, because we just don't want to get into any trouble. Yeah, yeah. I think that's that's a strong motivation for a lot of people. And in recent time, remember the Elon Musk was trying to take over Twitter, and I think the whole issue of freedom of expression, freedom of discussion, censorship, kind of came out because look at the reaction from the liberal left they are the ones censoring left, right and centre and now they are saying that, oh, someone buying and open up free speech is a bad thing. That reveal a lot about their mindset and I think it's the same for the medical community that has been infiltrated by liberal-leaning kind of agenda. It's like you can't even have a different point of view. You remember in the early days, the, the Great Barrington Declarations, which is a huge and, and very, very high number of qualified doctors, they were just dismissed like that. That's right. And so, but, but I think eventually they did get some foothold, but very, very limited because of the control by the establishment over the medical journal, over media, over internet, big tech. But there seems to be a big pushback and, and Elon Musk moved this sort of shade the whole thing and I think that is going to cause more and more like-minded people to come out and begin to share what they really believe. And it's very interesting because recently I was just listening to one of the podcasts mm -hmm. and those who are censored because of their point of view, yep. many of these platforms are flourishing. Yeah, yeah. yeah you know, they have millions of listeners, they have millions of viewing. So it's very interesting and I think that is what needs to happen in the medical mm -hmm. community. That voice of discernment, that yep. voice that is questioning the science, got to come out. Yep, you yep. know, you, you have to allow this voice to come out because it is only by then, even to make the whole thing clearer, it is as if like you, you have a working vaccine, mm. but you still have to allow the voice to come out to question certain aspects of the vaccine. Yep, you yep. know, what more? Now you have a vaccine that is with very questionable efficacy, very questionable safety margin. I mean, in the past, if you have a product like this, it would not be marketed yep, yep. in such a huge scale. It, it won't be have, allowed. It, it would have been withdrawn from the market. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and it's interesting you mentioned vaccine again because we, you know that's like the the major theme up till now. So many people still cannot differentiate anti vaxxer and anti-mandate totally different positions but that just shows you how the narrative the singular voice of the media is trying to 
convince everyone that this is the way. But like you say, so many people are coming out and we are seeing classical liberal people like Elon Musk, people like Ellen Dershowitz, people like Bill Meyer. That's right. They are, I mean, I, I won't call them conservative by any stretch of mean, but they are hating what they are seeing. And we may get a different kind of collision in, in days to come, which will be very, very interesting. And very much like what we've been talking about, there, there is a populist movement. There is a grassroots movement. I know people don't like this kind of term because it sounds like revolution. It sounds like anti-establishment. I mean, we make no apologies here at this podcast. We are pretty much anti-establishment voice. It's because nobody is questioning what the mainstream is doing. Now, we're going to wrap up soon because, you know, every time we did a show, it's like, oh, almost 50 minutes mark. And I know today we talk about long COVID, but we veer to many, many different parts. But what is your final word on long COVID? You know, it's like just a bit yada yada and we can just move on. Or is there something that is genuine out there? Actually, just now, one of the things that we didn't talk about was the body politics. Mm -hmm. You know, who are these people? You can Google their website to look at them. Not to disqualify them based on who they are, Mm -hmm. but they are not scientific people. Those who collected the survey, they are not scientific people. They are a group of journalists. Mm. They are a group of artists. The main board members, one of them is a sex coach. Another one is a medium type of, you know... Spiritual medium. Spiritual medium. Okay, okay. Spiritual medium in our society. He will be classified as a spiritual medium who is very into... A alternative, guru like that. <laughs> alternative medicine. I mean, these are the people who is sitting on the board in body politics. Yeah, yeah. Then at the same time, you have uh, the scientific people to tell you trust the sign. Mm. You know how are you going to to jump all these two? Yeah, yeah. You know that you have one group of people who are totally unscientific. I will put it that blunt way. But then the data that they collected, you know, including. More than half of the people who have no confirmatory PCR, yep, no yep. confirmed COVID-19 or tested negative is included in a study to define what is long COVID. And I think now, even the medical society, they have created a big problem for themselves because mm-hmm. they are in a position where they say that, now, what are we going to do about this? You know, how are we going to define what is long COVID? Because long COVID can be anything and everything under yep, the sun. Yep. So I feel that, you know, that the scientific people, they have created this problem for Because they, they kind of buy into the... I mean, trust the science is the most unscientific statement because you have to t- test any hypothesis. And I mean, trust the science people are the one who say you can be male or female depending on how you feel. That's right. You know, these are the same group of people that are just kind of, you know, coming out with all the rubbish. And I think if anything we have learned in the last two years, they have damaged themselves. I, I mean, even vaccine itself, I think even though they are good vaccines, but I think the trust in vaccine are going to drop tremendously because of mandate, because of coercion, all these kind of things. So really, I think at the end uh, you know, of this conversation that when we look at long COVID, that I would want to see there is more freedom of expression in the medical mm-hmm. society because it's this type of freedom that gave us the creativity, that creativity not just for innovation, but the creativity to come up with a solution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm also hearing that 
one of the development that came out of COVID is that a lot of people are afraid of medical doctors, <laughs> are afraid of going to hospital. Yep, yep. You know, you, you are seeing that people who had COVID and they rather suffer and sit at home. And some, I believe that they chose to die at home mm-hmm. because they do not want to be separated from their, yep, yep. their family. And you see that type of, you know, dissociation between the health problem and the, the medical community that slowly people are questioning, you know, that should we trust the yep. medical doctors? Should we trust the scientists? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. You know, you, you, you mentioned the, the freedom, the liberty, and it, it's all related. You know, I, I know it, on one hand, there's a medical aspect, but the lockdown, the mandate, they are all related because the moment you take liberty away, you take away the ability to think, you take away the creativity. And I'm just so surprised in Malaysia, people are still comparing liberty and China style system, which is just ridiculous because you have never experienced that kind of oppression and you say you want. Uh, there, there are people who mention we, we should just adopt China's way, but look at what's happening now with, yes. with their uncontrolled COVID zero policy. I mean, time will tell which system is better. But throughout history, we have known that every time you have a group that tries to suppress liberty, it doesn't end well. It, it just kills all creativity. And that's what we, we want to do you know, here, you know, to, to cause people to think what's really happening. You know, we're not trying to convince you either way, but hopefully from today's discussion, you start to see that there are certain suspicious things. There are certain things that are worth questioning. Yes, and I would say to our listeners, hopefully the doctors as well, that it is fine to question, you know, like Mm -hmm. you are free to question and do talk about it because sometimes I think we don't question enough because we are afraid of the left tried to label you as a racist, as someone who is feminist, and not pro-choice yeah, just yeah. because you, you question certain things. It's the same with COVID that you are labelled as someone who is against a COVID the medical... Denier. <laughs> a COVID denier. A conspiracist, you yeah, know, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I think so. So it's really good we have this discussion because this is almost like a summation of almost 800 days of constant talk. And so I think our time is out, but we do want to encourage... And I think Lanshi will, will get you back here again for, for a different topic perhaps. And... But we do want to encourage all of you that it is okay to question. It is okay to find out. Information is just out there. There are people, they are more like-minded people than you think. That's right. And a lot of them are maybe still covert, still hiding. But I really hoped they will come out and they will start to make a stand that will create a change in our society. Yeah. Okay, so that's it for today. And we'll see you again next week. Bye-bye. Bye.